so yeah initially the crowdfunder was to fund it wasn't to fund the book because we had a publisher for the book um it was to to fund the initial stages of the film so shooting mainly most of the money went on um shooting so we shot it in various locations including um new york as um, that was the the only outside oh sorry new york and india so those two those were two international locations and we shot you know quite extensively in the uk so that kind of initial crowdfunding campaign um that got us started um but it definitely wasn't enough to finish the film so that's why it took us another two three years to to gather the rest of the funds that we needed um and but yeah we we were quite successful with that first crowdfunding campaign and we kind of reached our initial target so that was great nice when the book kind of came into fruition as an idea and you know you were talking about it with other people um was that always an idea when you saw all of the memorabilia that Polly had and had left, like kind of what to do with it in a sense? Yeah, so there was a lot more than memorabilia. So that's kind of why I was inspired really to to do, you know, initially the book project because there was a lot of visual artwork um, that my mum had done. So my mum did all the artwork for the band herself and so it was the visual art that was really, um, you know, really special because no one had seen it. You know, they'd seen the end results. So they'd seen the posters and they'd seen the logos and, and the LP covers, but they hadn't seen like the process um, and the first drafts and things like that. So that was really, um, it was just something that people didn't really know too much about. You know, they knew a lot about my mum as a, well, fans knew a lot about her as a singer and a songwriter certainly but and even maybe a fashion kind of icon type person but definitely not really as an artist you know visual artist so that's that's why I was really you know that was the motivation to do what was initially going to be an art book. Mm -hmm. Would you say in going through everything for this book and you know the documentary and retelling the stories and hearing accounts from other people, it was almost kind of a reintroduction to her for you. Yeah, definitely. Um, because, you know, when we were doing the interviews, we interviewed, you know, a lot of people, uh, again, both for the book and the film. Um, that's when I discovered, you know, pretty much anything that I didn't already know was, you know, was through the interviews, I gained that knowledge. So yeah, it was, you know, it was rather than a rediscovery, it was a, a discovery of, of certain things that happened uh, during a time that I wasn't you know, around. So it was very, very interesting to interview people and, and find out those sort of stories. Yeah. What would you say was like the most fascinating thing you had learned about your mom? I think it's, you know, it's mainly stories and, and anecdotes and situations um, and so for, story of you know what happened when my mom was at John Lydon's house that was Johnny Rotten uh you know leader of the Sex Pistols um so there was an incident at his house and I only learned that through interviewing um Rena Vergano so that was my mom's she was kind of a tour manager kind of type she, she was also um 
she did PR for the Roundhouse, which is a, a venue in, in Camden in London. Um, and so she was working closely with my mum. So she told me about that story. And then Vivian Goldman, the journalist and, and musician, she um, backed that up with, you know, context about, you know, the, the scene and, and, and some of the people involved. So, yeah, you know, it was, it's kind of like moments rather than, oh, I learned this thing about my mom, like that I didn't know. Cause there wasn't really anything about my mom. I didn't know. It was much more about like situations and stories that she found herself in. Some of those like darker sides of punk and, you know, that whole environment that, you know, that was a real eye opener for me. Yeah. We, we've talked about that before and how, um, even in Dayglow, towards the end, there's a little part by Don who talks about the overanalyzing of the 70s scene and how people need to kind of focus more on like, you know, the attitude and the DIY ethos and, you know, moving forward as, instead of going backwards and looking at things because the things that had happened back then and, you know, the way they dressed and, you know, what was okay at the time isn't what would have been acceptable now. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I think it's there's the tendency for people to romanticize things in general. So that's very human. Um, and the punk, you know, the punk, punk rock scene of the 70s has probably been a bit romanticized and certain things have been glossed over. Um, I do think, you know, when people talk about punk um, and punk history, I think a lot of people have this idea that it was all these very like progressive kids, you know, very um, like, yeah, just very progressive politically. Yeah. And that's not really <laughs> what, you know, first of all, most of these kids were not political in any way. No. Um, you know, it was, it for many of them, it was purely about dressing up and, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and going to parties and, you know, it was nothing deeper than that um for a lot of them and 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 a part of that the fashion let's say or the style or the ethos or the you know the the attitude mm -hmm. a lot of it was um just shocking for the sake of shocking yeah um and being a bit rude being a bit you know like just being bad bad badly behaved you know and um <laughs> and so that kind of had this you know it led to some really um, bad behavior and, and toxic behavior, let's say, especially at gigs, you know, so there's some scenes in the film where you can see, you know, how my mom was just, you know, she'll come off stage and people would just surround her, um, you know, touching her, touching her head. And then you've got a thing, heckling that was going on, the, the spitting on, you know, just very, um, <laughs> uncivilized behavior at gigs that was um you know if, if you were a sensitive young woman as my mom was it was you know it was quite a tough environment to subject herself to yeah and we have to remember too that these punks were kids back then out there doing whatever they wanted to do and not really understanding the world itself and I think when we tend to look back on it we think of them as these older people who had control over, you know, the scene and, you know, were able to do certain things. And it was like, no, they were still figuring themselves out as a person. Yeah. Trying to, try to look Absolutely. to them to like have all the answers. Yeah. And they're like, they're 20 years old. Like, what are we? 
they don't even and know even, what they're doing even much younger than 20 so you know when my mum was playing gigs you know the x respects they were all teenagers themselves and um people would come to their shows would be as young as 14 because we're talking about a time especially in the uk i guess in the states it probably was a bit shorter. but in the uk you know that no one was checking this the uh, the age or like any ID we don't even carry ID in the UK you know (laughs) so (laughs) you you know you had 13 14 year olds um you know 15 16 year olds I would say 20 by 20 you were already probably quite old uh in in that (laughs) that's that's crazy like and now you have people who were kids at that time who are kind of, I don't know if gatekeeping is the right word, but it's kind of in that sense, you know, they're still holding on to how it was back then and not understanding that you need to let these kids in to help the scene grow and, you know, express their ideals and, you know, just keep pushing it forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, I think that's with anything, you know, any kind of organization or group of people. um, It's really important to, to be forward-looking that's why my mother um she was very hesitant you know she had many offers uh over the years to do like reunions you know punk reunions and um to do to do gigs with x-ray spec first of all because you know she'd had some really bad experiences um on stage in those days and and you know taken a toll on her mental health but then also she was just not interested in in trying to like recapture something a moment that for her had passed you know so she did end up doing a big kind of comeback gig at the roundhouse um but that was really apart from that and then there was one sort of almost like 20 years before that in the early 90s mm-hmm. um that she did in Brixton but those were the only things really and she it wasn't like she was never going to be you know touring again um going on big tours and doing all of these like uh punk reunion kind of gatherings um year after year it's just it, you know she was always forward thinking that's why her last album was you know can't really call it punk at all I mean most of the music she did post x-ray space is not punk nothing to do with punk you know because she just she wanted to express herself as an artist in lots of different genres and different mediums you know and not be kind of boxed into to one thing yeah, and that was something that stuck out in the book, too, is how adamant she was to kind of reject these labels like punk and feminist and all these different things. And you did kind of get the sense that she didn't want to be stuck in a box under these labels, because if she did, if she was, then that was all people were going to see her as. Absolutely. I mean, we interviewed also, um, you know, the the members of the Raincoats, mm-hmm. Um and we were speaking to them about some of these themes like feminism and um, in particular feminism, because that's a big one, you know, um, in those days, this was like the earlier, not early, because early is probably, I don't know, 1910 or something. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the, the, is it second wave? I don't know, feminism. It was, it was very, um, there was a very, it was kind of like, you know, there was a stereotype, let's say, of what a feminist was okay. at the time. And um, I think, who said it in the in the film? Um, one of the, the 
Raincoats members. She says that, you know, the, the issue is when someone asks you whether you're this or that, mm -hmm. and you know that you're not the version of that, that the, the same version of that thing that the person who's asking is, you may be another version yeah. you know it's very hard for you to say yes I'm that and like commit to to that if you get what I'm saying um and I think it wasn't just my mum there were lots of young women who kind of at the time who were they were resisting um kind of committing to any kind of you know political um ideology or, or stance um because I guess it was a time when it was very you know, um, very charged uh, time politically. Um, and I mean, it is today, we're kind of back where we were, but I think my mum would, you know, should be the same today. She would be very hesitant to, I would say she might even be a critic of what we call pol identity politics today. I, I, I imagine she would be because she was always very hesitant to accept any labels, any labels at all. Yeah. Pauline Black t talks about it too in it that like aside from the fact that she didn't want to call herself a feminist because people had these extreme views of it for her it was also something that she didn't see people like herself in that she didn't see black women calling themselves feminists or a part of the feminist movement because she had seen it as more of a white woman's mm -hmm. thing you know Exactly. And in interviews, I remember, you know, because I read a lot of interviews that my mum had done when, you know, researching for the book and the film. And there was one interview that's kind of stood out where my mum was saying, because I think people would always ask her about feminism. Yeah. So that's another thing, you know, the journalists would just always ask the same questions. And um, she even said, she was like, you know what, I, I, I'm actually more interested in race. Yeah. <laughs> than, than, than this topic you know so let's talk about race kind of thing um I guess you know that was at a time when intersectionality that wasn't really a thing as it is today um so I think again yeah you know it was it was kind of like you were one thing or another and it was really they weren't there wasn't this understanding that actually no it's really much more complex and you know it's really hard to identify as being a, a feminist, if you're, you know, a black woman at the time, you may not feel that feminism represents you. I don't think that was necessarily the case with my mum. Mm -hmm. I think my mum was just purely very stubborn when it came to, you know, kind of, she was, she was an outsider, put it this way. She was always going to be an outsider and um, she just didn't want to sign up to anything, you know, like, so these were the, these were the kinds of things where my mom was like, no, you know what, I'm not going to sign up to one particular label because then there are a lot of things that I may not agree with or that may not, you know, apply to me. Um, and so, you know, she didn't really, there was nothing you could say, like, are you this or are you that? She would always kind of be vague with her answer. She was writing about political themes, but I think she was coming at it from a place of, you know, social observation. Yeah. Um, you know, like, you know, think of someone like uh, Dickens, for mm -hmm. example. So, you know, Dickens, when he's writing about like industrial Britain, of course he's critiquing, but he's also just observing and he's presenting like 
this is this is society you know look at it it's not necessarily kind of it's not prescriptive it's not saying all the answers you know this is how it's not a manifesto yeah so that's oh bondage up yours is not a manifesto it's, it's very much a um you know it's like it's poetry and it's observation um and i think that's really important for people to get when when they we talk about lyrics and things like that yeah and that was so fascinating to read too in Daglo that the idea for that song had come to her when she had seen two girls handcuffed together <laughs> <laughs> like it really was just an observation of two women who were handcuffed together at a show and she was like I'm gonna write a song about that <laughs> definitely and uh, she got a lot of inspiration for those early songs just from being on the scene and seeing people um so she was also another inspiration for that song was of course the bondage trousers you know <laughs> that people were wearing because um, Vivian Westwood, mm -hmm. um, the designer, she was really, she kind of created um, the punk aesthetic in terms of what we now think of as the punk aesthetic, uh, the typical punk, you know, so the bondage was a big part of that. You know, she had a shop called Sex mm -hmm. and uh, she was kind of like selling a lot of like bondage gear. Yeah. which again at the time was extremely shocking especially for the older generation um because it had all the all these associations with sex um and my mother though you know she was one punk who never dressed like that and never got into it because um she i think if there was one thing my mum really believed in it was you know that's vaguely political it was that um you know the using sex to sell music was something she was really against um really really against uh because it was you know she saw it as a form of exploitation and self-exploitation yeah yeah it's i mean just how her mind worked in coming up with ideas and you know outfits and just everything was really compelling like We've talked about that too, you know, after we watched it and, you know, read the book, like who goes into a thrift store and sees a marching band jacket and is like, I'm going to do something with that and create this whole outfit with it and make it look really cool. <laughs> yeah, a lot of that came out of necessity as well, because she didn't have much money. So she would go to, and yeah, she certainly wasn't shopping in Vivian Westwood's shop because that was like really expensive stuff. Um, so she would be going to army and navy stores, they're called, um, and they were selling, you know, like military paraphernalia and clothing, but at really cheap prices because it was all secondhand. Yeah. So she got a lot of stuff from those stores. And then she would go to what we call jumble sales in the UK, um, which are like... Uh, markets where just regular people come and they get a table mm -hmm. and then they sell whatever clothes and whatever things they want to sell that's called a jumble sale so she used to get a lot of stuff from from those from those as well and also she had a shop before x respect she actually had her own uh little store fashion store and a lot of that was just she was reselling and customizing uh, secondhand clothes and military clothes um, and making her own jewelry and, and making some clothes herself. 
Um, but yeah, she was, you know, really big on the the whole like uh, secondhand vintage, what we call vintage now. <laughs> you know, she was definitely doing it before it was really it was really cool. Um, and that's why her style was very different because she was, you know, the clothes she was picking out, um, she, you know, she put a lot of thought into that and she kind of had a, a look that she'd sort of cultivated, which was a kind of mix between futuristic and so a lot of the, you know, military futuristic um, and then, but also kind of retro in a, like, she, she took a lot of clothes that you know grannies were wearing in the 50s and 60s and mix that with yeah military gear and then lots of bright colors so that was also a very conscious decision because you know you wanted to stand out from the other punks who were like wearing a lot of like black and leather and studs and you know the dog collar and all of that and she wanted to do something oh bright and day glow and vibrant and playful um you know so the, there's a lot of playfulness in in what she was wearing yeah and now you see kids doing that all the time like making their own jewelry and you know recycling old mm -hmm. clothes and I mean she was ahead of her time <laughs> <laughs> definitely definitely and uh you know it's just amazing what what kind of creativity often emerges from necessity you know so you don't have a lot you don't have a lot of money mm -hmm. so you actually you're kind of forced to to make something out of you know very little and that's kind of I do think a lot of punk was um you know when we talk about DIY it a lot of it was just you know they didn't have any choice they had to do it themselves um you know for example with the artwork my mum was doing it all by hand uh she was going to like photocopy shops and you know photocopying and and that's because you know they didn't have the, the digital tools that we have now so they had to just you know just do it by hand and and you know my mum didn't have any training she didn't go to art school or anything like that so it was all just it was a time when you really didn't need any for the first time I think punk allowed people like my mum who didn't have like any formal training um to actually be artists and you know and just experiment and maybe you know with the music maybe they couldn't hardly play their instruments some of them but it was just you know we're not going to ask permission to do this. We're just going to do it, even if we're not very good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's a great, I think that's a really great attitude that all of us can benefit from. Yeah. And we forget that a lot. A lot of these bands who sprung up at the time who are now seen as, you know, largely influential bands in the punk scene didn't know how to play their instruments you know they either stole their instruments or you know borrowed it from like a brother or a sister or you know just found a means to get them and we're like we're gonna do this and we're gonna be terrible at it but we don't care because we just want to do it <laughs> we just got our instrument we're playing a show tomorrow go yeah. for it <laughs> and I think that for me that is punk um because it's that just sort of uh, bravado mm -hmm. and um you know just courage it's a lot of what punk is about is is courage mm -hmm. and and also 
obviously you have to have a thick skin <laughs> you know, um, and uh, you know you've just got to be prepared to yeah take those risks to be maybe like booed or heckled or ridiculed you know they didn't care they really really didn't care also I think because their older brothers and sisters let's say were probably into you know progressive rock or something like that which was so um you know so skilled you had to be like really skilled musician to pull off a lot of you know that kind of music um and it was you know go, it would be like very long you know like six seven minute tracks with like you know just symphonies and god knows I don't, it's hard to describe what progressive rock is my mum was actually into it um she liked you know uh captain b part and all of those and she was she really liked that music but mm. you know all of those in at least in the uk all the progressive rocks you know rock musicians like jethro tull and um and pink floyd for example these guys definitely had training um you know and they came from very different backgrounds you know probably you know more educated probably more money um and and they had the training you know as musicians um whereas a lot of these punks they were you know working class kids or middle class or working class kids um that you know maybe like my mum had left school at 15 with no qualifications um so you know I think that's kind of what is for me the the best of punk really is that the DIY ethos that came out of it and I don't think anyone really exemplified that more than my mum because she was really doing everything herself like everything yeah absolutely and I think that's why like so many people look up to her but also I don't want to say not understand her but she was this whole entity on her own when you look at the broader scope of punk at the time and then you look at Polly herself like she really was her own person in her own world and doing things that were not even the norm for punk at the time you know but were her absolutely yeah she was um I think again that was just a conscious that was she was doing things consciously to be different um <laughs> you know she never my mom was you know very she was that she had that type of personality so you know if everyone you know if she found herself in a group and the majority are going one way she was always going to go the other way <laughs> and uh and that's reflected in her style in 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 the music in the lyrics you know she, she was very she was very critical in the sense of you know she was very exacting so in the band for example she was you know a taskmaster really she would get you know she would she was kind of never satisfied they would have to do it again and again and again until they got it right because even though a lot of the punks as we said they couldn't necessarily play their instruments very well what my mum wanted from extra specs in order to stand out she wanted extra specs to be very tight musically um, and they are when you listen to the album mm -hmm. um, you know it's a very like tight musically quite sophisticated um, you know, when we think of punk and very well produced. So it's, um, you know, and that's what my mum wanted. My mum wanted, you know, her band at least to to sound like professionals, even if they weren't. So that, that took a lot of like practicing, rehearsing and, 
that's where my mum was really at her best was in the in the rehearsal studio where she was kind of like you know um the choreographer and you know the manager of the band in that sense they had a manager but in the rehearsal studio she was kind of like giving the orders and she was very exacting um in terms of what she wanted and so everything she did and everything the band did there was a lot of thought that went into it you know it was it was not like just accident (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was interesting not only to read it but you know to see old footage of her in interviews and things because she like she did like to keep people on their toes and she was very aware of like what she was being asked and what was being talked about because she would just flip it or you know say something that was kind of unusual or you know (laughs) when like interviewers try to like incite a certain response or reaction and then she would like (laughs) like oh no (laughs) yeah Yeah. I mean she was and and she I think she got very tired very quickly of um doing interviews because you know they were really like inane stupid questions you know you see you see some of these questions that they were asking and you're just like oh my god like how could you why would you ever think to ask someone that like so rude you know um and obviously like so sexist a lot of it is is definitely due to sexism which you know it hasn't gone away you see how the press treats female yeah um you know, musicians, female pop stars, uh, it's still atrocious, um, you know, like dreadful treatment by the, the media. Um, and so my mom, you know, she got really sick of that very early on. And so she ended up just, yeah, almost playing games with, in interviews, you know, and she would even give like completely false information because that was quite fun as well, you know, so she just makes <laughs> make stuff up and uh and see if they would print it and they did of course <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah you, you definitely got that sense and even you know when x-ray specs started to gain more fame and people started to scrutinize her a bit more and even go so far as to question whether or not her braces were real mm-hmm. you know just picking apart the most crazy things to figure out like is this all just an image is she like actually like this or you know figuring her out because she was just such a complicated person you know that's the thing and the braces you know people would ask her if they were fake if they were a stage prop um and you know she (laughs) would be she would just be like oh my god like why would I choose to have these <laughs> on my teeth? Uh, she was very happy when they came off. Um, but yeah, and then she said even people would be like, oh, I want to get braces because, you know, because of your braces, even if they didn't need them. Um, and so she just, she just, yeah, I mean, but that's the nature of, of fame, really, isn't it? It's, uh, it's these really stupid things that the, the press pick up on yeah um and then they just like you know they go for it (laughs) don't they and they just like repeat rinse and repeat and repeat and repeat and then that thing which for the individual may have no significance at all becomes like what everyone focuses on yeah 
she is <laughs> like the front of a tabloid is like polystyrene her braces real. <laughs> that's it i mean the tabloid new you know i mean i guess you guys in the states you you don't have probably as bad um sort of a press as we do but our tab we have you know these tabloid newspapers mm-hmm. that are um you know it's just like uh, I mean they're quite entertaining to read because it's it's entertainment it's not news you know mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not journalism it's pure entertainment but unfortunately you know when you're like a real person who gets caught up in that uh, the way you're presented is just you know it's a complete caricature if you're lucky and that's kind of what my mom got uh, if you're unlucky it can be a total attack on people um and you know you saw recently with Meghan Markle you know in the UK um an absolute like witch hunt basically by the tabloid so my mum was lucky not to have that kind of like vitriol aimed at her but she definitely was kind of caricature is there is that a verb caricaturized um (laughs) by by the tabloids yeah yeah it was it was crazy to see just how far they went and kind of picking her apart and not it wasn't even trying to understand her it was just like here's this person who is her own person and doing things outside the norm who's gaining fame and let's try and figure out if it's real or not that's it that's it and again it's I think, you know, her being a woman, definitely it, you know, it changed the, the approach when it came to the press. They definitely treated women differently um, in the music industry and in the press and, and then being a woman of colour as well, because she was always, you know, either it was like erased, um, her, you know, her ethnicity was erased because people didn't know, didn't care. Or it was just, uh, it was like what everyone wanted to ask her as well, you know, about her racial identity. So that was also a struggle. Um, But it was, you know, I would say mainly it was her being a woman, being a young woman um, in the spotlight and all the horrible attention that comes with that, really. Um, You know, it's, it's, Definitely the music industry, even, you know, in in alternative scenes like punk was, as soon as you hit the mainstream and get some sort of commercial success as X-Ray Specs did, um, it, you know, it's it's not a nice world. It's not a pretty world at all for the women, especially. Do you think those criticisms and, I mean, it's talked about in the documentary, kind of the tipping point in her mental health was that trip to New York. Um, But do you think the criticisms, too, had a big part in her worsening mental health? Definitely, definitely. I think, you know, New York kind of just was, it was sort of a trigger, I would say, for for the first sort of uh, nervous breakdown that she had. But um, things were building up before then and definitely the press the press sort of intrusion was was a big factor but I think you know my mum kind of went through a crisis of well identity crisis in the sense that polystyrene was a character that she'd created it wasn't who she was as a person 
and when basically when that took over you know and uh, people started to started to approach her as that person who was in a way a fictional person that is I think a very difficult thing uh, psychologically to deal with um, and I think it affects a lot of artists especially young artists why because if you're like in your teenage years or even your early 20s you still haven't figured out who you are yeah. um, and you're still developing you know you're, you're still developing you know and mentally you're not grown you know and you haven't fully kind of um, come into yourself so then if you're famous or like people know you as this person, this like kind of person who's not real, it's not real, it's entertainment, then I think that can cause like a, a, a crisis, an identity crisis in that sense. Yeah. So she definitely was going through that. And so the, you know, seeing yourself in newspapers and magazines and on television, and it's all like this kind of person that you've created this character it, again that can also just be very overwhelming yeah it just it kind of got too big and you know she didn't understand that that person wasn't her in a sense you know it's like when you look in the mirror and you don't recognize the person looking back at you is kind of that in a sense you know she was looking at polystyrene this you know personality in the media and you yeah. know music and she was going wait that's not who I am that's this character that I yeah. created that's now taken over my life that's it that's it and that can be I think just any for anyone that's going to have some implications mental health implications you know obviously my mom she probably had a tendency towards bipolar disorder mm -hmm. um anyway yeah. but I I doubt that if she hadn't been in that like music scene, uh, she, I doubt that it would have been triggered to be honest, because I think it was really that, that whole period. And then you have to add to that, you know, that they were, you know, on her physical health was, was she was exhausted, they, they not sleeping enough, not eating properly. And then, you know, drug taking, she didn't take a lot of drugs, but she was smoking a lot of weed, for example. And that was because she wanted, when she came off stage, you know, you've got all this adrenaline, and you need to calm down yeah. so she would you know she would have joints and things like that but she was smoking a lot yeah. and uh, and so that is kind of like you know that on and off like crazy high of of performing and then there's like big low of like after you know when it's actually you know the reality I've, I've gigged and I know it's like it can be so exciting and it can be so boring you know so boring <laughs> You know, when you're just kind of like sitting around, like, you know, maybe after a show or before a show, you know, when they're like setting up and, you know, it's just a lot of sitting around. And what are you doing? You're kind of drinking or you're smoking or, you know, whatever. So there was that as well. It's just, you know, that that lifestyle, I think, is not sustainable for most people for a long time. Um, so I'm amazed by like, you know, when you see these bands that have been together for like 30 years or whatever, 40 years, and they're, they're still touring and, but they must have some things in place implemented, you know, some rules I think, <laughs> to, to make it, um, conducive to, to a healthy life. 
you know. Yeah, and you see bits and pieces of that mental illness in her early on, you know, both in the book and in the documentary that she had shown these signs and, you know, had little blips, but mental health also wasn't talked about enough at the time and there wasn't proper treatment for it. So it kind of went unnoticed until she started breaking down and, you know, was doing all these things because she was just overworked and exhausted and didn't know how to properly care for herself. Yeah, that's right. And um, I think, you know, there was a lot of stigma as well attached to mental health, um, a lot more than there is now. So we have progressed in many ways when it comes to at least being able to talk about it. So, you, you know, today you can say, oh, I have bipolar disorder. And people will not be like, ah, oh, you're a lunatic, you know, but in those days, pretty much first of all no one was talking about bipolar disorder so it was basically I think schizophrenia was really the only thing that you know that was actually like talked about and um and that's my mum was misdiagnosed as being schizophrenic and people had a very like terrible idea of what schizophrenics were like um and it was a big taboo. It was very, for her, it was like embarrassing. People just thought she was mad, you know, and that people, that those would be the terms that you would use, you know, you're mad, crazy, you've lost it, lost the plot. I mean, the British have so many slangs, so much like slang related to mental health. It's not, not nice words. Um, and, uh, and then especially imagine, you know, we're, we're talking about this punk scene where, again, it's all teenagers. Many, most of them are teenage boys, not sensitive in any way. So, yeah, like total nightmare to have to deal with any kind of mental health issue in that environment and be able to talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Imagine being like a teenage girl, like, like a woman in the scene, and then also having to deal with like mental illness stigma it's just so many layers to like have to navigate through and yeah find your way out and you know make it out like alive in a sense to to kind of stand your ground and be taken seriously it's like how are you going to be taken seriously if you're all of these things and they're just like no like like you said she's mad like we'll just ignore yeah. what she's saying mm -hmm. yeah. it's it's a lot and I mean you feel for her especially in the documentary when you see you know old footage and you know that picture of her sitting with Sid and Nancy and you know they're in that room right before she goes and shaves her hair like you you just feel for her because she was just this really sensitive person who was doing what she wanted to do and also you know wanted to be accepted by people and it just wasn't it just wasn't there for her that's right i mean that photo is so telling for many reasons one of them is that you know you see sid and nancy and john they all have like beer cans yeah. you know and my mum is has a cup of tea <laughs> <laughs> and i think that kind of sums up <laughs> so much you know because my mum wasn't this like wild kind of you know drinking she wasn't a big drinker at all and she was not really into staying up super late she was very in some ways very innocent I I, yeah. I read another interview that she did um you know when she was an adult and she um she said that you know 
her and the, the other band members as well, they were all quite innocent and very young. And she said, you know, they were not like going to wild parties after gigs. They were going to like these, uh, these bars that they had at the time. Um, they're called like milk bars where you would go and have milkshakes. And she'd be like, we'll go and have prawn cocktails. And <laughs> you know, like, you know, they were, they were not like these hedonistic, kind of people at all um so that also you know I think that photo it just shows like yeah she was you know kind of again an outsider even in that group of so-called outsiders you know and uh and that's but that I think that's really should be a badge of honor you know because be you know what my mum was really about what she really cared about was being an individual yeah mm -hmm and being yourself and not being afraid to be yourself even if it's not cool you know you're not going to be <laughs> part of the cool club or in the clique you know and uh, you know having to maybe you know be on the edges of things is good because it means that you can do your own thing you know yeah Pauline Black said it best in the book when she said the world is catching up to polystyrene it's not the other way around definitely I, th I think you know she was ahead of her time in so many ways I think if she if she was a kid today a teenager today doing music I mean in a way it would have been harder because the there aren't the same opportunities you know life has become so difficult in an economic sense that you can't just um you know my mum my was like had like a job on Saturday and that paid for her to <laughs> you know, do what she was doing and they could squat, you know, she used to squat in places and, you know, live basically live very, very cheaply, which enabled her to do the art that she was doing. And those opportunities, they're dis they're, they're kind of disappeared. My mum was seeing it, you know, in her, her later years, she would comment on how hard it was for young people to to do, to ever even imagine doing what they were able to do just because of the the economic system how much it's changed you know so on one hand maybe it would have been harder for her to do what she was doing but on the other hand I think society is kind of progressing many of these things that we're talking about like mental health for example that maybe it would have been a kinder world you know for her especially the music scene for example may have been a little bit less toxic uh, because people have a little bit more sensitivity yeah. today about these issues what they didn't have and I think I don't know if really record labels are, are offering that much of it still today which is you know pastoral care mm -hmm. you know that we have in the education system don't we this idea of pastoral care I think when we talk about you know young people in the music industry this we, this is needed you know you need some someone who's like can safeguard who can you know say like okay guys we need to put these systems in place to make sure that everyone is well you know staying well staying healthy you know both mentally and physically yeah um i think these this is something that's really needed in, in the music industry because it's such a, you know, it's just such a, it takes such a toll, you know? Yeah. And you're seeing those yeah. uh, resources more, you know, there's nonprofits out there who help with musicians care and 
people are being more flexible when it comes to that stuff and allowing, you know, members to take time off to deal with it because it is strenuous touring and -hmm. especially with their schedule, they toured so much so early on in their careers that it it was a lot. Definitely. The touring is, I think that was for my mom, the hardest. And again, you know, it's also, it's hard when you're a woman, you know, my mom was a woman there were lots of things that the guys in the band wanted to do that she didn't want to do, you know, and one of those things was, you know, drinking loads of beer, you know, it's as simple as that, you know, it just, you know, and, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of women who find themselves in that scene, um, that type of scene, which is very male dominated, what do they end up doing? They end up trying to keep up with the guys, mm-hmm. you know, and be, you know, be a cool girl, keep up with the guys, you know, and 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 kind of maybe try and go even harder than the guys <laughs> with like the drinking and all of that kind of stuff. And so again, I think, you know, women have different needs. We have to be able to talk about that as well, you know, and, uh, and you know, women have like periods, you know, and, just think about two I can't even imagine like going on a really long tour and then like having my period where I need like at least two days to just stay in bed (laughs) I really suffer with my periods you know so it's just like things like that it's just you know we need we need a lot more you know there's still we've come a long way but there's a lot more to do yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely I was gonna say like in the 70s and 80s they probably weren't saying like (laughs) Oh, I, you know, talking about periods and various other subject matter. Imagine, imagine Absolutely. asking your band member who's a guy if he has like a powder tampon or something, or if he knows where to get one. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> but that, that's the thing. That's the thing. I mean, you know, it, even today, you know, it's really hard for women to in the workplace to talk about periods. Yeah um and to get time off you know for period pain um Mm. it's it's still taboo so imagine in those days yeah like absolutely you know and my mama also she really suffered with her period so it's like a lot of her mental health issues were actually kind of like hormone related and and kind of related to her cycle so you know her most of her breakdowns that she would have would be before her period basically (laughs) and um you know again like there's not there's still not probably enough research that's been done on on that because you know men and women we're different we have different bodies and um so you know bipolar maybe for a woman is a very different experience than for for a man but it's it's really difficult to to get people to to care about women's health, you know, whether it's mental health or physical health, really difficult still today. Yeah, it's, the conversations are there, but we can always talk about it more. Yeah, we we need to, we need to keep keep bringing these things up, keep talking about it, remove the stigma, (laughs) you know, as time goes on. Absolutely, I mean, I always make a conscious decision now to talk about my period openly also in front of men you know they have to get used to hearing about it that's it <laughs> absolutely i mean it's it's a thing we all know it's a thing we just need to keep talking about it, <laughs> about it. exactly otherwise it's, it's, you get, one, like... it's, it's this one thing that you know half of the world's population 
all share we all share and we have to deal with it every month you know and then after that we have to deal with the menopause which is like even worse you know <laughs> it's, it's it's a lot we deal with a lot and we're we're both on tiktok like we watch tiktoks and it, it just reminded me i saw a tiktok of a girl who had put um you know comment what has been like one of the most eye-opening like things you have heard like stupid things that you've heard regarding like periods and just like women's health and mm -hmm. someone had said that she had gotten her period and her boyfriend was like well just push on your stomach and get it all out like it was so yeah. funny yeah it was that one and then someone else i think oh. was it a, it was something about like pads like something about like you don't need to go through as many like just wear one for like all the day <laughs> it was like outrageous stuff and we're like this is why these conversations are important because there's still a lot of education that needs to be done <laughs> so bad Yeah. more more education more sex education more health education just everything we need just everything just everything more of everything definitely yeah oh my gosh um talking about you know the end of polly's life and how she you know she went through the Hare krishna both of you went through the Hare krishna and you know she did get treatment for her mental health and you know all these different things and both of your relationships um there was a line i believe it was in the documentary i can't remember if it was in the book it might have been in the book too talking about how the last 10 years of her life was the best relationship both of you had ever had with each other mm -hmm. yeah because she was living in hastings so this is a seaside town near not too far from London, but it's on the coast. It's a small town. And it was just like really nice for my mum to be in this like more peaceful environment. You know, she she was born she was born in Bromley, which is a suburb of London, but she spent, you know, most of her life in London, inner city London. And London is a very like um, you know, it's a metropolis, it's it's yeah. it's kind of it's, it can be a very stressful place. Um so yeah, moving to, to this small town, it was just a slower pace of life, being next to the sea, you know, my mother loved the sea, she needed that, like, she got a lot from being next to the ocean, well, it's not ocean, it's sea, but yeah, she loved it, and um, it was really good for her, and so she was just happier, and, and you know, moving there enabled her to start doing music again. So she was again being like creative and writing and it was just like such a good move for her to, to go there. And of course our relationships improved because you know, she was happier and more stable. Um, and so it was, a, it was a really good time. You know, she always said to me, the last 10 years of her life were the happiest um, because, you know, she kind of, my mum was a person who didn't need a lot. Yeah. and this is something she needed to learn for herself she didn't need a lot you know she needed just you know like walks along the beach and and things like that that's all she actually needed to be to be happy 
um which is a great lesson as well because I think sometimes we kind of we're like oh I need you know when you're young you think I need so much I need this I need to achieve this I need and you're like I guess when you get older you realize that okay actually you know there there are a few things that I need and uh and they're not like they don't cost that much and you know and so just peace and tranquility that is priceless and I think my mum realized that you know she really needed that in her life to to be the best person she could be yeah and looking at the relationship both of you had had growing up and the instability in both of your lives it did seem like it was much better for both of you and closure to you know because she had cancer and you know when she died and all of these things you know that it was a way for you both to kind of reconcile and just enjoy the moments together. Yeah, that's right. And we enjoyed, you know, we really did enjoy those last years uh, together. And, you know, but she also enjoyed them by herself. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a really good time for her. And it, of course, it's, so, it's just so tragic that she got sick, you know. Um, she was just 53 when she passed away. But I will say she fit a lot into those 53 years. You know, she lived kind of three lives, um, you know, like really intense experiences, you know, for for, for what was quite a short life relatively. Um, but yeah, it, it you know, it goes to show, I think often that those type of people like my mum, they often don't live very long. And I think there's, there's kind of a reason behind that, you know, yeah, she she accomplished a lot in her life, and she, I mean, we don't need to speak on the legacy that she's left, you know, but she, she really was just this wholesome person who accomplished so much and did so many things, and I mean, the documentary was just great, because you got to explore all of that and hear things that you didn't know about her and hear, you know, how other people perceived her and, you know, regarded her as a friend or as you know her personality or you know all of these different things definitely and that was you know the nicest thing one of the nicest things was to hear about people talking about her legacy because you know it's all especially if I see my mother you know in terms of being my mother being my parent you know the fact that people honor her legacy in that way is very rewarding to hear um you know that's how you keep people alive really isn't it it's through it's through memories and people talking about their memories and and the thing about my mum is that she you know she will live beyond people's memories because she's part of cultural history so you know that will just continue and continue I hope it's so wonderful to know that what she created is living on Yes. and and also there are just so many very young people who you know like in their teens who keep they you know they'll come across x-ray specs as music and then they'll you know they'll be intrigued and then they read about my mom or they watch the film and uh and you have all these like really young kids who they find something that they can relate to you know and that's <laughs> that's just wonderful um and I think a lot of that is because my mom was was a kid you know she was so young so so young and um 
And so her being so young and then doing what she did and going through what she did, it's going to be really inspirational to, to the younger generation because we always, every you know, person has to go through these like challenges. I think being a teenager and becoming an adult is so challenging for anyone. Um, you know, and so it's really nice to hear like when people write to me, you know, they're like in their teens and they're just like, oh, it's like, you know, so happy I came across your mum because she's like really helped me, you know, and so that's that's wonderful. My mum would be so happy with that, you know, it's more than anyone can want for you know, wish for for when they pass. Yeah. If you were to take kind of one thing from, you know, the documentary and Dayglow and just her life in general for people to look at, you know, when they explore her life, what would that be? I think the individuality, um, you know, the, the bravery of being an individual, being yourself, being your own person. Um, I think that's, you know, the biggest takeaway, I think, from in terms of, you know, why is my mum inspirational and what can people like take from it as a lesson, a life lesson. Um, but then of course, it's just enjoy it, enjoy what she created, enjoy the music. It's great music, it's fun. And it's, it's uh, you know, it's just great pop music in a way, punk music, pop music, and uh, and enjoy the, the clothes and just enjoy, you know, that's, my mom created these things that we can all enjoy. And uh, so I think that's also really important. What's your like relationship with like your own punk identity? You know, if there's anything punk about me, it's, you know, I'm willing to do things myself and, you know, just take on a, a challenge, um, you know, a creative challenge, for example, you know, with making films, I had no experience making films and, and uh, I learned everything on the job. And now I can call myself a filmmaker because I've been doing it for five years. So mm. in that sense, yes, um, I have that punk ethos I think I've inherited. But apart from that, you know, I grew up in the 90s when, you know, I was really much more into hip hop and dance music, <laughs> drum and bass, <laughs> that kind of thing. So yeah, that that's more my scene. Because um, of course you don't want to do what, you know what your parents do and <laughs> that's you know. cool <laughs> yeah. I really like to like because I mean some people will see punk as like you know a, a genre of music or a style yeah. of dress and it's just like there's so many different variations of what makes a person like punk mm -hmm. and yeah definitely like DIY ethos and and doing things that you haven't done before that you're scared to try and then you accomplish them that's like you know that's completely like punk you know there's no right or wrong definition of it yeah. so yeah 100 percent, definitely I mean I I think for example that you know hip-hop is punk really in terms mm. of you know the punk ethos it's it's definitely not genre dependent yeah um yeah. you know and uh and I think music changes, music styles, you know, fashions change, but we can keep the best of what, what was punk, you know, we keep the best of it because not, of course, not all of it was great, 
but we can keep the best of it and um and I think it lives on definitely 100% staying true to yourself and doing what you want to do and not worrying about what other people think of it yeah I mean that's I think that's that's ultimately what we're talking about and it's it's quite Mm -hmm. a simple idea um and of course it it existed before punk you know it's it's probably existed you know since the dawn of time there have always been the the freaks and the outcasts and you know (laughs) the martyrs and you know it's it's always been it's there and and but I think what was great about punk um and kind of you know what was new let's say about it and that we can still kind of keep as an inspiration was that it's like you don't need um permission yeah you know you don't need permission from gatekeepers because there are so many gatekeepers in society you mm-hmm. know that have traditionally been like no you cannot join us without you know doing this this and this punk broke those walls down yeah and um and so that's really important we have to make sure they stay down because they can go back up if, you know if we don't <laughs> if we don't keep um trying to you know to to make sure that things are accessible that everyone can access that you know and that the economics that money is not a barrier and you know social status is not a barrier class is not a barrier race is not a barrier gender is not a barrier you know to 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 do anything um constant work in progress yeah absolutely it's that's just what it is. Keep it simple and move forward. <laughs> um, did you wanna did you wanna tell everybody like where they can watch the documentary or yeah. get the book or anything like that? So you can get the book in most, I think, um book, you know, big retailers, um uh Barnes and Noble, for example. I think you can get the book there, um, online or maybe in some stores um and then in terms of the film you can watch the film on in the states on apple tv and itunes um but that's like you have to pay for it you know you you buy it yeah and um and then in the future we'll have some more screenings well awesome thank you so much for doing this and taking the time to talk to us it was really enjoyable no it's lovely to speak to you both I'm DJ, I'm DJ.